Hello, um, I'm Enrico Orsini, um, Education Scientific Lead for EHA, and I'm here today to speak uh, with Professor David Rees about uh, acute chest syndrome in sickle cell disease. Professor Rees, if you want to introduce yourself. I'm David Rees. I'm a paediatric hematologist at King's College London and have an interest in sickle cell disease. Well, so um, to start with, do you want to give us an overview of what is acute chest syndrome in sickle cell disease and why this is important? Well, it's, well, it's an important complication. It's probably the second most common reason people get admitted to hospital in, in most countries. And it's associated with a you know, significant number of deaths and there's quite a lot of extra time in hospital and it's potentially quite a severe complication and does require quite specific management and doesn't always get managed in the best possible way. Um, there is some difference in epidemiology in children, adults, it's in more in a specific category of patients. Yes, I mean, there's lots of problems with, although it certainly exists, there's lots of problems in general with the defining what it is and it does vary from um, being a, basically an infection in the form of pneumonia to being mostly to do with vaso-occlusion and sickling. And in general, in young children, it's often mostly an infective complication, but there's always some degree of sickling. So um, you don't tend to refer to pneumonia, say, in children with sickle cell disease. You'll tend to call it um, acute chest syndrome. And as you get older, the, the proportion and the relative importance of infection probably gets less and it becomes more of a phase of occlusive complication, mostly to do with sickle cell disease. There's a, the pathology is complicated and there's lots of other factors going in and once it starts everything goes wrong but it's usually either triggered in most most children it's triggered by infection and uh, and um vaso occlusion then becomes important on top of the infection so speaking about the pathophysiology if I understand well it starts with an infection or uh, an episode of vaso occlusion and after and this is going to target the lungs yeah, I think it becomes a vicious circle. So in in simple terms, and probably in, in real terms, in real ter probably in real terms as well, then you, you get a bit, say, you get a bit of infection in the lung, and that bit of lung becomes hypoxic, short of oxygen, and so you get vaso occlusion and sickling in that bit of lung, which sort of further makes it um, more hypoxic, and it makes the infection worse, and the infection makes the the vaso occlusion worse, and so you very rapidly get a sort of um, upward spiral of damage to the lung with, where the, with the sickling triggering the infection and the infection getting worse because of the sickling, sickling rather. And in, in addition, there's other factors involved like hemolysis and the release of heme, which is very damaging and changes in the immune system. And there's a feeling that some, in some people you get infarction in the bone and that releases fat, which then lodges in the lung. So fat embolism is part of it. So it's a kind of complex um, mixture of things going on, but because the lungs are critical and, you know, with the source of all the, uh, reducing the oxygen in the lungs, you know, has consequences for the lungs very quickly, but also for the whole body. So at its worst, it spirals into sort of multi-organ failure and, you know, potentially death. I see. So is this a systemic reaction? That is well, it starts in the lung and the lung, yeah, but obviously if you, if you become short of oxygen, that become, has consequences for the whole body, particularly if you've got sickle cell disease, but then you get vaso occlusion all over the body and in other organs as well. And from the symptomatologic point of view, these patients, how they could 
appear, how can be diagnosed, what should be the thing that lets you think something like this is going on? Well, there's all there's sort of there's various definitions, and none of them are entirely in agreement or precise. But they all involve some degree of abnormality on chest X-ray or chest imaging. So you have some degree of consolidation in a, in at least one sort of segment of the lung, and in addition to that, you you need other lung symptoms such as a cough or fever or fast breathing or uh, chest pain, typically, or a combination of those. In about half the cases, it happens when people people come into hospital with one problem and the chest syndrome develops on top of it. So they might come in with pain in the leg and then they're in hospital, you know, and that the chest syndrome develops whilst they're in hospital, partly because they're in bed and they're having analgesia so they don't breathe deeply. Um, so it um, becomes a... It's a, it's a mixed picture, really. So the difficulty is when people come in knowing really when to do a chest x-ray or not. So you can't x-ray everyone in the sense that you expose people to radiation and that and if people are going into hospital, um, you know, two or three times a year in a lifetime, they end up having yeah, hundreds of x-rays if, they, if they're x-rayed every time they come in. So you have to have some key guide as to when to perform x-rays on people. And that would typically be those symptoms of cough and fever and chest pain or breathlessness. But it's not entirely precise what, how you define it. And some people might be missed with it. Yeah, exactly. That was the, the impression, not easy to, easy to find a patognomic, you know, very precise symptom that can tell It is. And it's easy to miss it until it's very late and the, ch- and the person is very ill. And there's a feeling that by identifying it earlier and treating it early, then um, the outcomes are better. And coming to management, exactly what, how is the management of these patients? Well, there's no specific management, and management hasn't really changed for or improved very much for a long time. When I had to do the slides for this, I don't know if you want to include this, but when I had to do the slides for the talk, I, I had slides that I did from about 10 years ago. And in fact, I thought, oh, I can update it. But in fact, going through it, there was very little that I could update. There's very little progress happened. Um, but the just uh, the free, the whole, the, the basis is to have you know people need good medical care and they may as I say infection is an important in component of all of it so people should pretty much always start antibiotics and if the oxygen levels are low they need oxygen support and they need good fluid balance often they're ill and they can't drink very much and people with sickle cell disease get dehydrated easily so they need um in good good hydration but not too much fluids and there's it has been a trend to give people huge amounts of intravenous fluids, which causes problems in itself. People need um, pain control and so that they can breathe deeply. But again, it's a balance in that if you give people too much analgesia, they become sedated and they breathe less deeply and it becomes um, you know, part of the problem. Blood transfusion is thought to be quite important. Certainly if someone's ill and deteriorating, the hemoglobin is falling, then how blood to early blood transfusion seems to improve outcomes and when people get very sick, then an exchange transfusion is is often performed. Exactly when and how you perform the exchange transfusion again isn't isn't very well defined. Um, there's no speci- there are trials of corticosteroids. Yeah, that's my next question. <laughs> the corticosteroids, the 
Well, the, uh, it is linked to asthma, certainly. And in some people have, if there's any evidence of reversible airways, then people go on bronchodilators. There is a trial in children saying steroids improve outcomes in, in acute chest syndrome, but they're often not used. And a lot of guidelines don't even mention them because there are side effects of steroids. And when they're stopped, people tend to get rebound pain and um, sometimes more serious complications like high blood pressure or even you know, cerebrovascular disease and stroke. But uh, I think they're probably underused and we use them sometimes. They do make quite a big difference. They do can stop some, when someone's deteriorating, they can sort of reverse that and stop them needing to go on to needing full ventilatory support and ITU support. And I think I'm not really sure why they've been neglected so much that they the steroids are, do work, but uh, but you have to be careful. And sometimes people get pain when they're stopped. But uh, you know, potentially having rebound pain is better than ending up on intensive care requiring ventilation. And there is a trend to give very high doses of steroids for for hemolytic con complications in sickle at the moment. So I think it's it's something to think about. It's definitely not a a wonder option. The, the basis is they need good medical care. They need people to follow them closely and support all their vital functions. And, you know, probably if they're getting sick, transfuse them and they reduce the amount of sickle in the blood. Sadly, there's no specific treatment for it. No specific treatment for a non-specific disease? Or the... Well, for sickle in general, there's not. But if there's acute chest and there's no yeah. drug, you can say this is, apart from steroids, which is, as I said, is debatable, then... There's no specific drug that's been shown to change the natural history to improve outcomes. But there's been no trials of any drugs, so that's one reason why um, that might be the case. You can prevent acute chest syndrome quite effectively, and hydroxyurea has been shown to, you know, to reduce the frequency of acute chest syndrome. Sorry? I mean, reduce significantly. Yes, and, it, and we've seen a change in our practice over the last... You know, 15 years, say, uh, we see far fewer cases of acute chest syndrome now because far more people are taking hydroxyurea. The second thing that has been shown to prevent, help prevent problems is a thing called incentive spirometry. And as I said, a, a lot of the cases, nearly half, happen in people already in hospital. And if those, again, this is in children, but is still used in adults, there's a, if those children are encouraged to breathe deeply when they're in hospital, then that's been shown to reduce the frequency of acute chest syndrome developing and the way that's done was with a thing called an incentive spirometer which is like a thing used for asthma really to to measure how fast the airflow is and children in fact suck on it that they sort of breathe in deeply using one of these spirometers twice an hour for um or maybe four times an hour by still in hospital and that's been shown to reduce the frequency and it's quite a nice thing, so it's quite easy to do. And it, it means, if nothing else, someone goes and talks to the patient once an hour and makes sure that they're, they're still okay. Perfect. Thank you very much. Good. Thanks. <laughs>